Okay, I think I'm back live. Are we live? Can anybody hear me and or see me here on Twitch? My newest, favoritest platform to be hanging out on. My name is John Boyer, Professor Boyer to some, teacher of world regional geography and geography of wine here at Virginia Tech, home of the Fighting Hokies. Welcome back to a bunch of hardcore listeners who are in it to win it with me as we try this experimental concept of picking one particular world global topic and then lecturing about it for several days a week. I had originally intended <laughs> that each lecture for each day of the week would be about a half hour, 45 minutes, and I have completely failed you with that. Each one is going two to three hours I probably have about 11 hours of content for you tonight. However, I don't know that my voice will hold up that long or that your interest will hold up that long. So we will start our uh, lecture roughly where we left off yesterday. Uh, tonight's focus is going to be on China's territorial titillations. That is those parts of the planet that China is claiming as its own that it is having outright war with or future frictions with um, or groundbreaking, world-changing, possible international conflict may result from some of these things. Now, we always hope not, uh, but I do want people to understand that this was part of the, this whole part three, which we have, again, probably no real aspirations of getting through. <laughs> but this was part three of the podcast that we've been doing all week on China. Uh, is it a peaceful rise or is it a threat? And it's going to appear, I think, if you just tuned in and hasn't haven't seen anything I've talked about for the last two days, as soon as I say territorial ambitions or territorial titillations, and perhaps there's going to be uh, there already is some active conflict uh, on, in some of these properties that China claims that it's own, and there's likely to be future conflicts in other places China is claiming is theirs. So if you're a first-time viewer to this series, you're going to immediately think, oh, he's just making fun of China. He's just saying China is bad. He's pointing out all these places that China is having conflicts over because they're grabbing land, or actually, more importantly, grabbing ocean. Uh, we'll get to that. And that is not my intent. Uh, I do want to uh, start uh, state from the onset of this that yes, China. There are reasons why China is currently claiming different places. There's a reason why they uh, absorbed Tibet. There's a reason why they claim Taiwan as part of their empire, and there are strategic defensive reasons that they, as a world power, are making certain military moves. Uh, that makes sense, that every world power, as they rose to uh, dominance or predominance, would have done the same things. The United States has done the same things. The United Kingdom did the same things. So I do want everybody to keep in mind, I try to be a, a uh, even keel. I don't really have a dog in this fight, so to speak. So I try to be as balanced as I can and show both sides as we go, a lot of people, uh, especially in the United States, in the United States government, quite frankly, are very fearful of China and have uh, said this is their rise is not peaceful and they're doing all these bad things. I am not a spokesman. I'm an American and I'm a, not a spokesman of the American government. 
That's their angle. And lots of folks in even Europe or other parts of the planet are debating about uh, is China's economy so powerful now and such a magnet that they have undue uh, impact on all these other places. And this is starting to worry people. Again, I am not uh, a, a, a warmonger or a worry monger here. I just want to explain, here's how I got to be that way. Here's why these things are happening as they're happening right now in the year 2020, in the 21st century. There are reasons why it's unfolding as it is right now for better and or for worse, depending on your point of view. I just want to educate your point of view. So China's territorial titillations. Let's see how far we can get tonight. And at any given time, we, uh, uh, you, the viewers, can say, hey, I've got a question about this or I disagree with that. We welcome those comments and questions. But also as, uh, as a collective unit, you as the viewers can say at any time, hey, can we stop and pick this up tomorrow? <laughs> well, maybe not tomorrow. I do have to travel uh, for the next couple of days. So maybe Friday afternoon or Friday evening or even Saturday. Hell, I'll, I'll podcast on a Saturday. It sounds like fun to me. Anyway, here we go. Let me see who's in the chat room right now. I see Olivia. 222 says hello. Uh, here for the quiz points. Welcome, Olivia. Well, here is the deal, Olivia. Uh, help me make some questions for the, uh, from this podcast that I can then turn it into a quiz later tonight or tomorrow morning. I do need some help. I can't, I can't remember every single thing I say, especially if I say, hey, this is a very good quiz question. Make sure you write that down and make a list to get it back to me. Uh, a classy cynical says, hey, uh, I can see. Same here. Thanks. Classy. Uh, nerds are people. Is back in the hizzle. Saying go Hokies. Uh, Vicky Lars uh, says 30 to 45 minutes. I, I, Vicky, reel me in at 45 minutes. I would love to get a night's sleep. <laughs> I haven't slept for like a week. Uh, uh, H.T. Uh, Reese or H. Tree says, since China seems to be a controlling state and not a conquering state in the... Is the rise of China that bad for the world? Um, by the way, that's a great way to start H-Trees because it's neither good or, nor bad. As a, you know, an active historian and you know, uh, assessor of world news and a futurist, there really is no good or bad. I'm simply here to say, here's what's going on. Uh, and to the best of my knowledge uh, and wisdom, here's why it's going on. So the rise of China, again, some would say it's terrible. Others, if you're Chinese, you think it's great. <laughs> and if you're an American, you think the rise of America was great. If you're everybody else, you don't think it's so great. So all of these things, you can't um, uh, gauge goodness or badness in the events of our species. They just are. Goodness and badness has to be attributed by the eye of the beholder. What's good for one is bad for another sometimes. Uh, what's good for one is good for another sometimes. So that's all very relative, and I'm not here to speak to any of the relative stuff. Having said that, I'm sure I'll piss off some Chinese people because um, uh, very proud Chinese nationalist, and there's 1.5 billion Chinese people. I don't think that every single one of them uh, thinks their government is the greatest ever, but a bunch of them do. Like a billion of them think... Their government can do no wrong. It is the most awesome government on planet Earth. So anytime you, you, you make some assessments that maybe paint China in more of an aggressive light in certain circumstances, uh, uh, you'll be attacked. And I've already been attacked in previous editions of this very podcast. And that's fine. I get it. Everyone thinks their country's great and everyone else's country sucks. Uh, but I mostly just want to talk about territory right this second or for tonight 
because I wanted to get to the Taiwan issue last night and went for two and a half hours and got right to the cusp of it and just ran out of steam. So we're going to pick up tonight's focus mostly on territorial titillations, areas that China claims that are causing friction in the world. Here's why some of these things are happening. Okay, and I left off uh, last night, or if you were with me for the last two nights, I was going through a whole lot of Chinese history very quickly. <laughs> Huge generalizations, because you have to. It's 5,000 years of history. What the hell am I going to do in a single podcast? I try to pick out things that are important to understanding today's world, not really give you all the details of everything that ever happened in China, because whoo, that's a lifetime, lifelong course. So I had gotten just to the point of, well, what is the deal with Taiwan and Tibet? These are the two biggest chunks of land that China claims as part of its territory. Uh, some would argue they already are part of China's territory. And as the biggest, I want to make sure we understand why these two huge chunks that involve significant numbers of people have been incorporated into a China proper or soon to be incorporated into China proper. And I already see some more questions coming up here. Uh, Classy Cynical says, how are you doing today, Professor? I'm doing great. Uh, by the Arch says, how are giving questions just in chat? Uh, if you could just type up questions as you go, if I say something that's uh, of significant relevance to you, or you're like, wow, I never knew that before, write down a little factoid, make a little question about that factoid, and make a list, and then just email it to me after this. Is that cool with everybody? Is that cool? 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 Because uh, <clears throat> I could sure appreciate the help. Uh, let's see. Uh, uh, okay, that was you that answered that question. Oh, you've already answered. Okay. Uh, and Vicky Lars says, so people like nerds and I can quietly continue to just ask random questions uh, without a care. Yes, Vicky. I like that you say people like nerds and I. <laughs> okay. So I had gotten to thing four of things you need to know to understand modern China. What's the deal with these big ass places that lots of folks say, hey, aren't we trying to free Tibet? And isn't Taiwan a separate state? Ah, let's get to that then. Uh, and it's, of course, been in the news a lot. One of the reasons I started doing this podcast this week is because last week a whole bunch of students hit me up saying, hey, Boyer dude, I saw something that China's getting ready to invade Taiwan. What? Is there war getting ready to happen? And and I heard that, you know, that the United States is supposed to go defend Taiwan. You're like, uh, okay, those are... Some valid points that people saw in news. Uh, China was not invading Taiwan, by the way. They were doing a practice drill. I don't even know if they did a drill, if they released a, a basically a plan of how they would invade Taiwan. Were they ever to invade Taiwan? So it, nothing was happening on the ground. Chi Taiwan did not get invaded, and I'm not sure that anything active happened at all, even in terms of a military drill. So what is the deal? We'll start with Taiwan. What is the deal with this place called Taiwan? And before we go any further, and here you go, we got some test questions already. Uh, when you read any and all Chinese history, modern Chinese history, last hundred years Chinese history, uh, into the modern era, there is a couple of acronyms you need to understand, and they're wildly for, confusing for people that don't know any Chinese history. When we are talking about China, China proper, the big China, main China, Xi Jinping China. That is the PRC. That's the People's Republic of China. So 99.9% .9 of the time, when you hear the word China, we're referring to this big-ass country called the PRC. The People's Republic of China is its official title. Got it? The official title. 
The ROC is what makes it confusing for those not in the know. And the ROC is the Republic of China. But it's better to phrase the ROC as basically a, I don't even know how to call it now, a political party within Taiwan. So I'll get to the history again to review it in a second. But just so you know for now, when we say ROC or Republic of China, we're actually referring to Taiwan versus PRC, People's Republic of China. That's the real big China that most of us recognize as China. So how do we get to the point of having two Chinas? I'm glad you asked. And if you tuned in last night, you got more than an earful that took two and a half hours. I'll try to condense this, just the highlights of it right here. I had been talking about how China went through a period of 200 years of humiliation, of uh, invasion, uh, of influence, or basically uh, foreign powers taking over the main ports. Foreign powers basically controlled the economy of China by the 1900s. The political system of China was in tatters. They overthrew the last emperor, the last dynasty. They said, we, we're so far behind and we're being dominated by foreign powers. We're just going to get rid of our whole political system too, which caused basically a civil war for another 50 years or another 40 years. So disarray, uh, China in disarray from about, and it's nice just to round things off, 1750 to about 1950, about 200 years. It's called the period of humiliation. And during this period of humiliation, um, one of the humiliating things was that Japan had attacked them uh, in 1910 and again in 1943 and took properties from them. And one of the properties that Japan took from China uh, was the island of Taiwan. Uh, so Japan controlled Taiwan for the first half of the 20th century. Uh, when it comes to the other territories we're talking about, like Tibet, it was kind of part of the uh, of failing Qing Empire. That was the last empire that had a really big territorial extent. Uh, but it had fallen under sway of kind of the British control, that whole red zone you see on this map. And, and Tibet was way up in the mountains anyway, in the Tibetan Plateau. It didn't have a lot of action anyway. It was just on the fringe. So it wasn't that the British people were in there taking over, although they, the British had already taken over uh, India, what's now India and Bangladesh and Pakistan. And so uh, the British actually did have some inroads and influence into Tibet. So as China is falling apart for 200 years, the Brits and all these other foreign powers you see listed here were kind of coming in, moving in, either outright controlling in the case of Taiwan being taken over by the Japanese or having great influence and in basically controlling without outright owning the rest of China. Most of the foreign powers, by the way, did not want to take over China. They said most of the foreign powers were like, we just want the stuff. We just want their goods. We want their industry. We want their spices. We want the silks. We want the porcelains. We want to control their trade because they're so freaking rich. We've been paying these guys for hundreds of years buying their stuff, and they're getting wealthy, you know, and we get good stuff, but we're at the negative end of this trade balance. So basically, all of this foreign influence was about restoring a positive trade balance to the invading powers. They weren't interested in taking over a half billion uh, uh, population of Chinese people and outright controlling China. They did in India, by the way. But China was just a little bit big, a little bit too much, and it was much more effective just to take over the industries they wanted. That's why no one ever officially took over China proper. Until the Japanese did uh, in World War II when they physically started invading and taking over China. But I'm going to cut to the chase on that. How uh, do we get to the current state of two Taiwans? 
I'm sorry, to China's, the Taiwan perhaps is one of them. Uh, as I suggested, uh, uh, the island was lost to uh, Japan in the 1895 Sino-Japanese War, and I think I just said 1910, so I'm sorry, amend that statement. Taiwan was lost in 1895, although fact check that for me. I want to say it was 1910 for some reason. I think it was the second wave. Uh, we'll fact check that before we make it a quiz question. Uh, however, the main thing is Taiwan was physically lost to uh, Japan. Uh, but then, fast forwarding, Japan's going to lose World War II. I think most of you know that little tidbit. And so in the aftermath of World War II, all of the territorial gains that China had made in, in uh, Japan had made in China, of course they lost. They got pushed back out. Uh, 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 by the onset or middle of World War II, Japan actually controlled, in fact, is it on this map? Yeah, it's, this is a pretty decent one. You see that green line. So the first wave of, of Japanese entree into controlling territories was in 1895-1910 when they took over uh, the Korean Peninsula and Taiwan. You see that. And then the green line is pretty much the extent of what they controlled in mainland China, and they controlled all of Southeast Asia uh, by 1943-1945. But then the tide of the war started swinging back against them. I know I'm already getting off track, but Japan had, you know, inclinations of taking over all of Asia. Pretty much they had this bizarro, you know, pact with the Nazis and the Nazis said, well, we're going to take over all of Europe. Uh, and the Japanese said, that's great. Why don't you have that half of the Eurasian continent? We'll take over all the rest. And these guys thought they were going to get away with it. I guess they got close. Uh, but that's how Japan ended up controlling big chunks of China. Taiwan, they lost early on. Okay. So then the Japanese are going to lose. They get pushed out completely out of mainland China proper. It's not until 46 that they're doing mop-up operations. After Japan already surrendered, you're kind of mopping up and pushing out the rest of the soldiers and armaments that were still even in Taiwan and the Korean Peninsula. And following a united effort to defeat Japan in the Civil War, I've already glossed over that, there was a Civil War also occurring in China this whole time. Uh, from 1912 up to the end of World War II. <clears throat> Two different political parties were fighting each other. The communist versus the nationalist. Question. Well, your fact check was 1895 for Taiwan. Uh, Korea was annexed in 1912. There you go. 1895 is when Japan forcibly took Taiwan. I'll repeat. 1895, Japan forcibly takes Taiwan. 1910 is when they forcibly take the rest of the Korean Peninsula. They were already making inroads in 1895. So it was kind of a war, but it's more like Japan just kept nibbling off and taking more stuff as it went. Question. Thank you, Michael Ataturk. Um, that was a mouthful of a question. Yes, uh, considering scorched earth policies that the United States government took against the South in its own civil war, doesn't it just make sense that the Chinese communist uh, would have done the same thing when they won their civil war? Sure. Yeah, I'm not, I mean, again, it's not up to us to judge if these are good events or bad events, uh, but humans are pretty predictable. And so, especially in civil wars, you want to completely decimate the other side. If you leave the other side alive, it can grow again to fight another day. So, yeah, in most civil war circumstances, and this is the world over and throughout history, uh, the winning side 
tries its best to annihilate the losing side in its entirety. And that is exactly what was going on in China. <clears throat> Excuse me. So, the, and I, if you tuned in last night, you know the whole story, or at least a little bit of it, that the communist forces were down and out in the 1930s. They, they should have been defeated, and the nationalists didn't wipe them out entirely, which is why they rebounded and grew and got better and got a lot of support during the Japanese occupation of China and ended up being the winning team. So, case in point, I guess. Point being now that by 1949, civil war is over. The Communist Party wins. The People's Republic of China was established. That's your PRC. That's mainland China. That's big China. The nationalist side of the uh, Civil War fled to Taiwan. Again, it's a civil war. So much like the North, thank you, Michael Ataturk, for making that analogy in my head. Much like the, uh, the United States Civil War, where it was the North versus the South, that's kind of how it played out at the end of the Chinese Civil War. It, it didn't really have to do with slavery or culture or anything. It was two different sides fighting. But by the end, it was the, the, the northern forces that came down and were continuing to isolate and take territory away from the nationalists who were in the south. So pushing down, pushing down, pushing down until they took all the mainland territory and the nationalist party fled over to the island of Taiwan. So the rest of the men and the guns they had, they hauled ass across the straits and set up camp in Taiwan, where they basically said, oh, we're not giving up yet. We actually won the Civil War, and we're actually in, tr in control of all of China. We are just located in Taiwan. And that was Chiang Kai-shek, is the picture of the guy that just popped up, if you didn't tune in last night. Chiang Kai-shek was the leader of the Nationalist Party. And he said, no, 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 we, we're not giving up. We're still here. And we're in charge of China proper. We're, we're the real government everybody should recognize. Uh, just located down in Taiwan. Uh, Mao Zedong of the communists said, you're a fool. Uh, we won. We control the third or fourth largest uh, land entity on the planet Earth right now with uh, uh, you know a half a billion to 750 million people. Of course, we are the real China. And that's where it sat in 1949. Remember, the war, World War II, ended in 1945. So we're only a few years past World War II. Yes, question. I was questioning here. Vikram, what's up, Vikram? Good to hear from you, buddy. Uh, Vikram says, why did the British not care to take over China since they were weak and also rich in resources like they did with India? Uh, yeah, I tried to reference that a little bit, Vikram. It was just economically more feasible to control the industries they wanted to control. All they wanted was the industries. All they wanted was the money. And so the port, the way that China is set up is uh, geographically, it's a lot different from India. So you know India. India, you know, has got a billion people scattered in small villages all over the place, industries all over the place. Uh, uh, there's no major mountain chain except the Himalayas, which is up north. Uh, so there's no separation. There's no tidy way that there's this over here and that over here, that industry's over here and not over here. India is, uh, if you want to control India, you, you got to take it all lock, stock, and barrel. You have to get in there and actually control it all because everything is everywhere. China, if you think about its geography, is focused in the east. And all of the movement in China for a very long time has been a major exporter of goods and services. And how do you export stuff to other countries? Well, in China, you do it on the coast. So the coastal cities is where all the industry's always been. It's the port cities where everything goes into, everything comes out of. So if you want to control an economy 
In India, you got to control every single human that's making every single thing. In China, you just got to control the East Coast. Once you control that, everybody else is at your whim. And the other thing was that India is very different than China in terms of, and how do I say this nicely? When the British took over India, it was a series of small uh, sub-states or princely fiefdoms or whatever you want. There was no central, huge, powerful government of India. There was in China. And so China had, uh, and Chinese people for a very much longer time had a a sense of identity of being a, a part of a singular whole, a part of a state called China. We are Chinese people in the state of China, and this is our, and our government's been uh, 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 large and in charge for a very long time. So it's just it's simply uh, a geography and also kind of a historical evolution that I don't know. Maybe Vikram, you can tell me this. Was there a sense in say 1700 that people living in central India? were part of a country called India? Uh, were people in northwestern Punjab, did they say we're part of India? Uh, did people down in this deep, deep south, or Uttar Pradesh, were they saying, uh, yes, we are Indian? I don't think so. But Chinese people, very much so. And I'm pointing that out because to go in and control uh, people with a very strong sense of self-identity and sovereignty and then there's a half billion of them, that's work. Do you want to do it? I don't want to do it. Hell, we got 300 million people in this country, and we're divided populations out of each other's throats all the time. Who the hell wants to be president? I've always cracked up about people who want to be president. I'm like, why would you want that job? <laughs> Try to think about coming in as a foreigner and controlling a very big state with a very strong sense of self-identity. It's it's, there are two different beasts altogether. I don't know if that helps, if that answers your question. Uh, Vikram, but yeah, they wanted the stuff, including tea, as you pointed out, uh, not so much interested in like levying taxes on the people or shit like that. Okay. And Vikram says, no, uh, no, in India back in the days, everything was about provinces. Yes. Kings and queens and princes and fiefdoms. It's, it was just a very different place. Okay. So that's where we're sitting at with Taiwan. And I can see we're going to get Absolutely nowhere tonight. I couldn't be happier about it. Let's say I'll at least get through Tibet. And I'll reference what's going on with India. <clears throat> and I'll I'll call it after I do a, a short bit about India and China conflicts. And then I'll see if you guys want to go further. Is that cool? Okay. So, yes, another question. From YouTube, Jen or Zen. Let's say Zhen, yeah. I still understand why most Americans support Taiwan as a country. Zhen uh, from YouTube says, I still don't understand why most Americans support Taiwan as a country. Hey, I've got a slide just for that. You ready for it? <laughs> here we go. So uh, here's why, Zhen. Because in 1949, just after World War II, the Soviet Union uh, was our ally, uh, the United States' ally during World War II, the Soviet Union, the United States, and all the Western allies fought together on one team to beat the hell out of the Nazis and then turn around and beat the hell out of uh, the Japanese. Uh, one should note, by the way, this is very much forgotten in American history or what we teach of it because the United States is like so super friendly, big allies with Japan right now. The United States 
utterly decimated, destroyed, and firebombed Japan into oblivion in World War II. And China was helping the United States in World War II. Again, the communists were. The Mao's communists were helping in a guerrilla campaign to, to fight back against Japanese occupation in China. And the United States military was working as much as they could in tandem to use China as a base to push the Japanese back as well. So in this bizarre twist of fate, which no one remembers, the United States is actually working with China during World War II, was also working with the Soviet Union in World War II to beat the bad guys in World War II, which were the Germans and the Japanese. And then as soon as the war was over, the Cold War begins. And at this point, the United States' main mission and its Western allies uh, is to fight against communism. Remember, during the Cold War, the commies are the bad guys and the Western capitalist democracies are the good guys. Again, depending on your point of view. <laughs> so in, in light of that, and maybe this makes perfect sense to you already, Jen, in light of that, as soon as the Communist Party under Mao won the Civil War in China and China becomes a communist state, immediately the United States does not want to have anything to do with it. Does that make sense? Tell me if Jen from YouTube heard that and if that makes sense. It should be crystal clear. And to only to, not to defend the United States, but to get you to understand the United States position at this time, it's not that the United States really hated China or really hated Mao. It was more that the United States lived in mortal fear of communist takeover of planet Earth. It's why we had the Cold War. The United States faced off mostly against the Soviet Union for a 50-year run to make sure that communism didn't prevail. That's why you had the Iron Curtain in, uh, uh, in Eastern Europe. It's why you had an arms race and the Soviets were building nuclear weapons and the United States was building nuclear weapons even faster to prevent. So each side was trying to prevent the other side from winning the Cold War. China was still kind of down and out in 1949. They just did unify the country. But they're decimated after hundreds of years of being abused by foreign powers and then living in a state of political and economic chaos for virtually another 50 years in the 20th century. From 1900 to 1950, China's at war and being invaded and their economy is destroyed. So they're, they're not as, as uh, uh, far along as the Soviet Union is in 1949, but they were becoming communists. So they, uh, uh, China in 1949, 1950, even 1960, was not that much of a threat to the United States, but they still were on the wrong team for the Cold War. I'm sure you're going to get to this, but they're saying, why still now today do we support Taiwan? Yes, that, okay. The, and the next question is, okay, that's fine then, but why now today are we still supporting? It's the same country, it's similar <coughs> country, same language, same ancestors. Sure. It's the, uh, by the way, there are Aboriginal people of Taiwan that are not ethnically Chinese, and most of them got slaughtered, or not most of them, but a bunch of them got slaughtered. Um, uh, Eric Lynn actually hit me up about that on Facebook. I forget what the name of it is, like the White, the White Revolution or the White something, where the Nationalists, when they took over the island, there was some pushback from the Aboriginals, and so the Nationalists under Chiang Kai-shek wiped out a bunch of people. So not a, not a pretty story there either. But the question is, how come we're still, okay, that's fine for 1949, Boyer, but how about now? Well, again, remember, the Cold War started in 1949. It lasted for another 
40 years? And one could argue it's still lasting to this day. Or is the United States big buddies with Russia? Is Russia big buddies with the United States? Are the U.S. and China big buddies? So there's remnants of the Cold War that are still playing out. And one of the reasons why the United States sided with the P, uh, I'm sorry, the ROC, Taiwan, sided up early was partly militarily strategic based. So think about this. The United States is there beating back the Japanese. Many, uh, I would say many, some military men uh, during this period, just after World War II, actually talked about the United States should claim the island of Taiwan and just take it over. Think about how strategically awesome that would have been had they done it. So from a military or defensive posture, the United States was looking at Taiwan saying, well, we want to check the future growth of communist China because we're worried about communist. And since China is now communist and we're fighting tooth and nail in a Cold War against the communist Soviet Union, it behooves us to make sure that Taiwan stays separate and stays in the democracy category. Just because if they do, we can use that strategically whenever we want. If a war were to occur between the United States and all the communist powers, let's say 1960, the United States was in a position of having a uh, island that was they had already started to arm. They could be having uh, boats there and missiles there. And indeed, the United States was using Taiwan as a kind of military go-between when they were doing mop-up operations after World War II. Does that help make any sense? So early on, the United States said, hey, we're going to support these guys because we kind of want access to this island. And again, some military people said we should just take the island right now. It would behoove us. We, it, it would be better. Again, this is early on in the Cold War. And some people were saying it would be better for us to control this island outright. And if not, let's, let's support Taiwan because what if China sides up with the Soviet Union? What if they make a strategic alliance and become this huge, powerful communist entity that's going to dominate the world? Then we should make sure to tease off as many areas around China as we possibly can. By the way, it wasn't that the United States was picking on China. They're doing the same damn thing in Europe. So the United States, the whole uh, 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 military, uh, 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 I'm sorry, rebuilding package called the Marshall Plan was provided to Western European countries in order to get them back on their feet so that they could be uh, work against uh, any Soviet incursions in the future. And that's why NATO was formed. So this, the idea that the United States would be supporting Taiwanese independence or even anything that was separating Taiwan from mainland China, that's just strategically smart. And they were doing, and they weren't picking on China. They were doing the same thing in Europe, NATO and the Marshall Plan and the EU. All of these things were... I won't say taking, but empowering neighboring territories surrounding these communist entities. It's a policy of containment. If you want to know a lot more about this, just go look up containment. The United States' policy towards the Soviet Union, especially this whole time, was a policy of containment. Work to establish allies and territories and friends all around the Soviet Union to therefore contain them so they can't move their power outwards. So we're still on slide two or 10, whatever it is. Just because it's a 50 years later, 
you shouldn't assume that the mentality of defensive and offensive posturing has changed. In fact, it hasn't at all. So before I even get to explaining the rest of why Ty- why the United States uh, still supports Taiwan, I think I just did. Really, nothing has changed since World War II. And it went through a period that I'm going to tell you about right now that it started to warm up. And since the collapse of the Soviet Union, it warmed up even more. And since it became obvious that China really wasn't that communist, uh, it's warmed up even more. But now that China is very powerful, everybody's scared again. Outward, the policy of containment may be back on. If not back on outright, at least the United States is going to not make it easy for China to expand beyond its current borders. That makes sense? Hope that makes sense. Okay, how do we get to this point of containment policy? Well, let's just outline how that happened. Uh, Whoops, these things got out of out of order. So I'll just go back here and p- click them all up. So 1949, China becomes China, PRC. Most of the world's countries recognize this big entity called China and Mao Zedong in charge of it. But not all, because the United States said, no, we like the, the uh, Kuomintang, by the way, is the name of the uh, political party under Chiang Kai-shek. We like the Kuomintang because they were fighting for democracy, or at least that's what they said they were doing. Uh, the nationalists, the nationalist Kuomintang party, they were the ones who wanted to turn China into some Western-style democracy or something close to it. Uh, and they were left in charge of Taiwan. And so the United States said, hey, we like that team. We like team democracy, Kuomintang. We like the nationalists. We are going to recognize them as the rightful rulers of all of China. Again, you can laugh about it in hindsight. You're like, that's stupid and ridiculous. But you're going to support who you're going to support in the conditions where you're at right now. You don't know what's going to happen in the future. And for all we know, hell, the communist government could have collapsed and then perhaps the nationalists would have taken back over. That didn't happen, but maybe it could have. So the United States throws in their lot with the ROC. That's Taiwan. (coughs) Excuse me. However... This doesn't last long. So we're talking about 1949, round up to 1950. So let's go to 20 years in the future. So now we're up to 1970 of the United States having this policy. And by the way, they weren't alone. Uh, the United States, because of its power, diplomatic and economic soft power, the United States talked most of its Western allies into also recognizing Taiwan as the legitimate heir of China proper. A bunch of countries recognized Taiwan. And those uh, countries that uh, were recognizing Taiwan, you could recognize Taiwan one of two ways. You could recognize Taiwan as the true leaders of all of China, which not many countries did, the U.S. did. Uh, how, or you could recognize Taiwan as a sovereign separate state. And a shit ton of countries actually recognized that. I think at one point about 110 maybe at its max, recognized Taiwan as, as at least a sovereign state. So either way you recognized, Taiwan had a lot of legitimacy, and, and for a while, for again, since 1949. However, things start to change when it becomes evident to even the United States that, oh, okay, this status isn't changing. <laughs> Uh, the nationalists aren't going to rally and take back over China proper, and the communists have established themselves, and they're and they've gotten their act together, and they've got a functioning 
political base and a government and an economy that's starting to put itself together. So it became almost kind of a joke uh, that, yeah, you're going to recognize this little group of people uh, on an island as ruling this giant country. So in 1971, the actual UN seat flipped, meaning because the United States and its allies were so powerful after World War II, they had the power to pressure the body of the United Nations into recognizing the head of Taiwan as the head of China. So from 49 to 71, the person sitting at a seat at the United Nations with the title of China in front of him was somebody from Taiwan. But by 71, enough other countries, and including the United States, had said, okay, this is getting kind of ridiculous. We, you, you'd be at one point, you're making a mockery of the whole United Nations if you're just going to say, well, I, I like my brother Fred. I think, let's recognize Fred is in charge of France just because I like him. You, like, that doesn't work. You don't have any quid pro quo there. International policy and treaties don't mean anything. You have to recognize the legitimate people in charge of places, even if you don't like them, a.k.a. like North Korea. Nobody likes them. Everybody thinks they're batshit crazy. But you're not going to recognize Uncle Fred as being in charge of North Korea because no, no, what are you going to do? It doesn't do any good. So by 71, there was a U.N. vote, and the seat actually flipped, and then somebody from communist PRC China was sitting at the seat at the United Nations on behalf of China proper, making negotiations and diplomatic policy and all that other stuff. By the way, I think the United States actually voted against that. But why they didn't have a veto over it, I don't know. Probably because they saw the writing on the wall. And they saw the writing on the wall that China was going to have to be in charge of China uh, with Nixon visiting the very next year. So behind the scenes, there was action happening already that, yeah, we're going to have to recognize communist China. And by the way, I'll just start calling it that for the rest of this little stint on Taiwan. Communist China... Taiwan. So even in the United States, in uh, uh, the corridors of power, people started to say, dudes, we got we to gotta start recognizing the communists uh, because we be we're becoming a joke and we don't even have diplomatic interactions with the real Chinese. Uh, and it's a really big country. And so this is, a, this is becoming preposterous. Uh, on top of that, and this is a lesser known thing, uh, the Nixon administration and maybe even the administration before him they, um, they uh, and that would be LBJ, they kind of were looking at the Cold War. Again, this is 20 years later into the Cold War now. And they were looking at the Cold War and seeing what Russia was doing. And they discovered over time that they were mistaken because they originally thought that because it's communist China and communist Soviet Union, that the commies would love the commies and they all get together and form this commie power block. And they were mistaken. Russia and China hated each other for most of the Cold War. They did not work together. In fact, China worked very, very independently. So the behind-the-scenes thing that is a test question is one of the reasons why the United States finally recognized uh, China and, and the president of the United States even visited is because they were trying to put a wedge or, or widen the wedge between China and the Soviet Union. That makes, see, it's geopolitics at its best. You're like, well, yeah, we're scared of the commies, but it's better to have them separate instead of being friends and getting on one team. So the United States intentionally started talking about, let's, let's, let's separate China, let's legitimize them and work with them a little bit, or at least do everything we can to make sure that they don't side up with the Soviet Union.
which is their main adversary at the time. Does that make sense? So USA changes diplomatic recognition from Taipei to Beijing on January 1st, 1979. So it still was another six or seven years where this action was happening behind the scenes. Uh, and you know, military strategists and policymakers were like, we should, we should probably reckon. Let's go ahead and recognize. So that officially occurred 1979. And in that occurrence, they came up with something called the One China Policy. Uh, the One China Policy is still in place to this day. And this is important to know, maybe enough for a test question. The One China Policy is from the United States, although there are a lot of other countries have a One China Policy too. But the One China Policy is that we recognize that there are two entities that have claimed to be China. Communist China, Taiwan. We, as a sovereign state, are only going to recognize one China. Now, they're not saying, hold on, they're not saying, yes, it all should be unified. The United States policy is, we're only going to, we're only going to deal diplomatically with one China. And in 1979, that one China was communist China. Okay? So they flipped. The same one China policy does say, though, oh, we uh, support peaceful resolution of communist China and Taiwan doing whatever it is they're going to do. We believe that maybe you're going to be a one singular uh, sovereign state entity someday, but we're only going to support a peaceful movement in that direction. Does that make sense? Okay. Now, all these years later, like I said, about over 100 states at one point, and by the way, back to the 79, uh, in 79, when they did this policy, this is when United States uh, never has recognized Taiwanese independence. Never. Has never recognized Taiwanese sovereignty. But at this point, lots of other states who had not recognized Taiwanese sovereignty started to. Because at this point, Taiwan itself said, hey, well, we see the writing on the wall. We're never going to take back over China. So we want to be a sovereign state. We're, we're a capitalist democracy. We're allies of the United States. We're allies of the Western nations. Uh, so we want to do what we can to be separate. And a lot of countries said, oh, yeah, that makes sense. I mean, come on, what's the big deal? China was never about that. And for your notes, for the quiz, the United States never agreed to that either. The United States has consistently stood by their one China policy where they said, no, 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 there's only one. There's only one China we're, and we're dealing with that one China, and you guys need to sort out whatever the hell it is you're going to sort out. But we, the United States, do not recognize Taiwan as a sovereign state. Now, what's happened over time as China has grown, has strengthened, as their economy has gotten gigantic, as they have expanded not just militarily, but soft power of politics and economics. Everybody wants to do business in China in the last 20 to 30 to 40 years. Every business wants to be in there. Every country wants to trade with China. Everybody does. And because of that power that China has gained in its re-rise, they have been able to effectively pressure virtually every other country on planet Earth that used to recognize Taiwan into not recognizing Taiwan anymore. So now it's down to only 17 states that actually even recognize Taiwan as a, recognize the sovereignty of Taiwan. And every time it's ever come up, even in the United Nations, the United Nations is like, no, no, we're not voting on that. Taiwan, almost every year for a very long time, is like, we want to put forward 
a, a referendum uh, for the United Nations to recognize the sovereignty of Taiwan, and everybody just kind of slams the door in the face. No, 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 we're not voting on that. Stop bringing that up, Taiwan. We're not voting on it. And so it kind of it is a, a, a dead uh, a DOA situation with Taiwanese sovereignty, at least right now. Uh, some parties still push for it. And this, of course, infuriates China to no end because China has since day one said, no, you're the losers of the Civil War and you're going to be incorporated back into the vault someday. You're part of China. Uh, and that's where it kind of is now. But look at all these headlines I got up here. But oh, there's always a but. Just in the last week, the Trump administration has sold $1.8 billion of worth of arms to Taiwan because in the same act in 1979, where the U.S. recognizes Beijing as the true leader of China, communist China, and doesn't recognize Taiwan as the leader of China anymore, they also created at the same time something called the U.S.-Taiwanese Act. And in that act, the United States said, hey, look, we're saying straight up, we don't recognize Taiwanese sovereignty. But Taiwan's our friend. Taiwan's our buddy. Taiwan's a democracy. Taiwan's capitalist. And strategically, it benefits us to keep a presence or at least keep a separate Taiwan to use as a strategic lever against China anytime we want to. And so in the Taiwanese Relations Act, Part of the verbiage in there is that the United States will do everything in its capacity as a friend of Taiwan to assure its defense, to assure its self-defense. Let me make sure. I'm going to say that for a second time so you understand what I'm saying. Assure its self so that Taiwan can assure its self-defense. The United States at no point, even in the Taiwanese Act, uh, Relations Act said, the U.S. will come save you if you get attacked. Never says that. It says, we're going to help you be able to defend yourself. And how do you help people defend themselves? Sell them a shit ton of weapons. <laughs> and the United States has been doing that to, for Taiwan since 1979. So Taiwan, of course, would be buried in an avalanche of fire and hell and brimstone if a true war ever broke out between China in Taiwan. China's so much bigger and so many more weapons, but Taiwan has got some heat itself it can bring to the table. And it's got missiles. Not, I don't think any of them are nuclear. That would really offend China. But it has warships, has missiles, it has missile defense capabilities. So, and all of that has come from the United States. I'm sorry, you had a question? Oh, okay. Yeah, Panama. Uh, well, this might have been an old map, but the last the last number I saw. Oh, by the way, look at the 17 that recognize Taiwan. It's powerhouses like, I don't know, uh, Vatican City. Vatican City uh, is that uh, um, St. Kitts and Nevis? Most of them are the small states in Central America and the Caribbean. So, I mean, you don't have even a singular powerful even a mid-range powerful country that's supporting Taiwanese independence. It's all very small. And by the way, when I was saying China uses its soft power uh, to convince states to not recognize Taiwan anymore, what I mean by soft power is they can go into a country like Costa Rica and say, hey, we see you recognize uh, Taiwan. 
Okay, how about this? How about we uh, how about we build a railroad line for you to the tune of $150 million? We'll just do it for free as long as you stop recognizing Taiwan. Hey, uh, St. Kitts and Nevis, how about, how about we um, sell you guys a ton of food or a ton of energy or a ton of something for pennies on the dollar if you stop recognizing Taiwan? That's how that has happened. I'm sorry, another question? Check the chat room questions. Uh, let's see. <laughs> Cameron, the map god, says, that is pretty crummy. Glad Tricky Dick did the right thing. <laughs> Tricky Dick, I love when I hear that term. Uh, for those of you who don't know, that's uh, a uh, nickname for Richard Nixon. Uh, and Vikram says, uh, let's see. Had a side question, possibly answered a previous cast. How did the nationalist feel or plan to do with the emperor or the general position, if not uh, the individual? Was oh, was that? Oh, it was, oh, I'm sorry. It was Vicky. Sorry. It keeps jumping on me. I can't get back to it. Uh, so, yeah, the nationalist. Um, the You have to remember, we're talking the 19... This started in the 1920s into the 1930s, into the 1940s. The emperor and the dynasty had already been deposed. The last emperor of China was in 1912, I believe. So there, there, at this point, there's no real going back. The, there was no emperor to save. There was no emperor to overthrow. He had the nationalists won the Civil War. And, and so it, it's a, it, it's a non-point. I mean, there, there was no emperor there to do anything with. Kind of like what the French did with the French revolutions, or, or the Soviets did with the uh, Soviet revolution. Kill all the royals. Just kill the whole royal family. You don't have a choice. We're going to be something new because the old system's dead. So that was you know, the reality on the ground uh, for the Chinese Civil War. Having said that, even if the emperor and his family were tucked away somewhere, the nationalists were for a more Republican-style state, more for a Democratic state, or more some, some sort of representation. And I believe the guy's name was Sun Yat-sen, was one of the first and uh, most important pro-democracy supporters in China. And actually in the 19-teens and 1920s, went on a world tour and talked all over the place at universities and talked to governments about how they should support the nationalists uh, in this fight so that they would have a, a, a loyal, reliable, democratic capitalist partner, partner in China. Had things gone differently, uh, and Sun Yat-sen convinced more people, I mean, you, the world would be terribly different if China would have went that direction, right? But it didn't, so we'll move on. Oh, other questions, let's see. Uh, Jakob says, I said I wasn't going to join on Facebook, but here I am. Thank you, Jakob. Uh, the perspective I read about Mao is uh, had a really good relationship with the Stalin administration. So when Khrushchev came to power, it just all went south. Yeah, uh, yes, that's true, Jakob. They had a, they had a decent relationship, <clears throat> but it was more that once World War II was over and and the Chinese Civil War was over, the Soviets got a little too uh, domineering. Most of the reading I've done is that the Soviets sent in all these advisors and sent in all these industrialists and sent in all these people to help China be good communist. And if you don't, if you know Chinese folks at all, or really any folks at all, period, you don't really like foreigners coming in and telling you what to do. So even though they had this link of being communist, the, the Soviets apparently overplayed their hand a bit. So there was a lot of friction between the 
Soviet Union and the Chinese, even in the early days of, yeah, we're, we're fine. We can do this ourselves. We don't need all these Russian Soviets in here helping us out. So, you know, maybe it was also a change in leadership that made it go further south, but it was not very strong even from the get-go. I mean, maybe it was like six months or a year where the Soviets were really getting along with the Chinese and doing good things, but it did not last long. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, let's see. Uh, Vikram says, why not? Is it because everyone is scared of the economic consequences by China? I'm not sure what that reference is referencing to. Uh, and Cameron, the map god, says Taiwan Missile Crisis 2020. Yeah, it's probably coming up. That, that's why I wanted to do this whole thing just on Taiwan. I'm like, mm, this, this one's going to get hot again. We're kind of, we're starting to skirt right up against this is getting hot again. Uh, if Donald Trump gets reelected and he's continuing, his administration is continuing the economic trade war with China and how he's already said he's going to sell $2 billion worth of weapons to Taiwan, look for this to get hot. It's just, it just is what it is. Uh, Harry Tom uh, says if uh, China went to war against Taiwan and the U.S. would Japan and uh, oh, I'm sorry, would the U.S. and Japan uh, or would would Japan and the U.S. and or Australia get involved? Um, probably not at, at this at this juncture in history. Uh, if this if the Chinese were to invade Taiwan tomorrow. The Trump administration would be very tempted to get involved, but I don't think they would. I, basically, you're talking a World War III scenario. Nobody really wants it. Nobody really wants it. Uh, both China and the United States have nuclear weapons. So you're talking about a lot of death and destruction if the U.S. gets involved in a straight-up encounter over Taiwan. Same could be said with Japan and Australia. They would only go in it if the U.S. does. Now, they... The most likely scenario is if China were to do something aggressive towards uh, Taiwan, which it has in the past, but military exercises, never a direct invasion. Uh, if the uh, Chinese do something specific against Taiwan in terms of sending in troops, I think you're, the likely scenario is you're looking at a worldwide economic embargo against China led by the United States, Japan, and China, I, and even India. And that gets to that thing called the Quad that we talked about in reference to the last couple things. I think the Quad is the new kind of counterbalance to China, uh, and we'll talk more about that uh, later. Okay, so Taiwanese-U.S. Relations Act. The important thing for you to understand is the United States says, we do not recognize Taiwanese sovereignty. However, we're friends with them, and we assure them we will always help in their self-defense, which is why the U.S. sells tons of weapons and still does, and Donald Trump is fanning the, uh, uh, the fire, the flames of this fire with this declaration just in the last two days. Okay, makes sense? Cool. Uh, and my, I'm kind of been skirting around this this whole time. For me, I think the Taiwan issue is about over. Yes, I just told you that Donald Trump is, uh, the Trump administration is perhaps going to get re-involved and perhaps the Quad is going to push back against China. But if China were to invade tomorrow, I, I just can't see the world deciding uh, on nuclear annihilation uh, to save Taiwanese independence. I just kind of call them like I see them. The U.S. won't be happy about it. The Western democracies won't be happy about it. A lot of Taiwanese people will be extremely unhappy about it. But... I just can't see how it's going to play out any other way. 
I, I figure the last 17 countries that even recognize uh, Taiwanese sovereignty were likely going to be won over by the Chinese very soon. Uh, and even if they don't, they're such small countries that it doesn't really bother China anymore. The only sticking point is the U.S. selling arms to China right this second. And China doesn't necessarily want to take over Taiwan by force because, one, it makes them look bad, and two, it will unify other countries against their uh, uh, other expansions in the South China Sea in particular. And I'll get to that probably in like 13 weeks if we keep lecturing at this pace. <laughs> I'm even all ready to get to the South China Sea today because it's another hot spot too. But I, my, my inclination is Taiwan will likely slowly, still over decades, revert back to Chinese control uh, hopefully without a firefight, much the same way you just saw it happen to Hong Kong, an issue that we might also touch upon in the next 200 hours of lecturing. Okay, Vikram says, could Taiwan work with the U.S. for their military support before China take them over completely in a few years? They already are. So, you know, is there like fireworks going on outside or something? Oh, just turn it off. <laughs> Um, I'm like, is somebody blowing up something outside? Is China uh, listening to this podcast and they're sending in missiles against me right now? You don't know where I'm at. I'm in an undisclosed location. You'll never find me in the caves of Tora Tora Bora. So, uh, uh, yeah, Vikram, uh, I don't believe the U.S. already has been doing weapon supplies. The U.S. has actually sometimes in the past conducted training drills with China. Well, I'm sorry, with Taiwan, which has always infuriated China. They might do some of that, but again, when the rubber hits the road, is the United States going to come and save Taiwan? Doubtful. Anything can change in the history of, of our species, but at this second, seems doubtful. You referenced South China Sea. I think it's much more likely that Moves would be made in the South China Sea to limit China's growth if they become too aggressive against Taiwan. That's the main thing that's going on behind the scenes. Uh, let's see. Olivia222 says, do, so do 14 or 17 states recognize Taiwan? The last I looked at was 17, but Katie, you said you looked it up and it was 14? Yeah, I just said 14. Well, I wouldn't give you a trick question in that sense. So I, uh, 14 or 17. Un, under 20. Let's say under 20. Uh, of the 195 states on planet Earth recognize Taiwan. Yeah, and it's, that's what I'm saying. Uh, it's, it's getting hard to keep up because China's influence is growing so much that they're, and they really work hard at it too. They really, they, even though it's St. Kitts and Nevis, they don't want a single small entity anywhere recognizing Taiwanese independence because then uh, it puts them in a future uh, situation of, well, no, obviously. Obviously, Taiwan is part of China. Everyone has said they're not a sovereign state, which is kind of where they're at now. Cameron the Map God said, why did the U.S. not do something with the Chinese Civil War? The U.S. Uh, invited themselves to the rest of the civil wars during the century because of uh, nationalism, pro-democracy, at least in the case of China, versus the commies. And with the billions of people at stake, you think they would have jumped in on it. I'm guessing it was because it was too early after World War II and the U.S. was busy rebuilding everything in the Berlin Wall. Yes, Cameron the Map Guide, you just answered your own question. The U.S. was quite busy. World War II was just over. Nobody wanted to start World War III just as yet. Uh, and the main threat, the main concern for the United States and its foreign policy at that time was the Soviet Union. 99% of its time was thought was spent thinking about the Soviet Union. 
China just didn't was not at the scale of importance at that time. But my 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 my, how times have changed. So if you could pull somebody from the uh, uh, past, if you could pull Dwight D. Eisenhower up from the past or some of his uh, advisors in the fifties and said, "Hey, dudes." What were you worried about back then? And they'd say, oh, that's Soviet Union. Well, how much you worried about China? Not worried at all. They would be shocked that the Soviet Union had gone away and China is as powerful as it was. If, again, if you, back to the future, if you'd have brought them forward, they'd have been like, oh, shit, we probably should have paid more attention to China. But everybody thought that the, United, the Soviet Union was going to be the winner and be the one that took over the world. It's like, yep, everybody called that one wrong. <laughs> Uh, uh, Jay Kim says, Professor, are you by any chance banned by the CCP? One would think that I should be banned by the CCP, but uh, as it happens, Jay Kim, somebody took uh, uh, my entire lecture series on China that some of you who are currently in my class are watching right now, and some of you have taken my class in the past, have watched in the past. It's like three hours lecturing on China, some of which you're seeing right now too. Uh, somebody in China took it and translated it all into Han Chinese with subtitles, and people regularly watch it in China. So I guess the CCP must be down with me. You know, I, right? There's your T-shirt right there. You know, CCP. Yeah, they're down with me. So I don't know how that even happened. It was fantastic, and I have in the past. I'm trying to remember where I was. I met some Chinese folks. I want to say just a few years ago, maybe it was on the West Coast. I was somewhere. I wasn't here. It wasn't Blacksburg. Because, you know, people know me in Blacksburg because I teach at Tech. But I literally was somewhere else in another part of the world. And some Chinese people came up and said, are you John Boyer? Maybe it's when we were a semester at sea. And I'm like, yeah. They're like, we watch you. We watch you in China. And I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. They're like, no, we, we watch your videos for a class one time. And I'm like, well, damn. Damn, Skippy, that's kind of cool. So as far as I know, the CCP has no problem with me. I'd like to think that, again, I'm kind of balanced enough that they at least would say, well, he's not attacking China. He's not making fun of us. We wish he wouldn't talk about Taiwan at all, but he does. So I don't know how I haven't been banned, but I'm quite happy that I'm not. Because that's not what I'm about. So I think the Taiwan issue is... See, maybe the CCP likes me because I say this. I think the Taiwan issue is kind of over. Uh, I've got my good friend Eric Lin, who spent a lot of time in uh, Taiwan. Uh, he agrees. A couple other people I know who look at these you know, political situations, they say, yeah, it's... If you look at what just happened to Hong Kong, the Taiwan thing, it's going to take more time. And China wants to take it slow. They don't want to invade. They don't want to go kill people. They don't want to put boots on the ground. They just don't. That would be an embarrassment for them. They would look like a, a, a huge aggressor. And they don't want to be... They like to have a good image in the world. Again, that image being increasingly challenged, which is why I'm talking about it in this podcast. But to be an open aggressor and invade is... It's raw power. Uh, and it makes you look like the bad guy. So China doesn't want that either. They're going, they, they play the long game like they just did with uh, Hong Kong and like they're doing with Tibet. Speaking of which, I think that the Taiwan situation is going to just muddle along for another years, decades, I don't know, 100 years, but eventually it will be reabsorbed into China proper. That's just my call from the early 21st century. Uh, and I believe the Tibet uh, situation is all but over too. I don't see how you go backwards on that. 
And now let's talk about Tibet for just a bit, uh, which it's a lot simpler story. If you've tuned in or read any Chinese history or watched my previous lectures, there's been tons of different dynasties in Chinese history. Again, it's four to 5,000 year long history. Empires come and go. Dynasties come and go. Sometimes states are strong and they grow and expand and then they collapse and then the, the empire shrinks again. Then another strong entity comes around and expands and then they collapse and it shrinks again. So this little map here is just showing you just a handful of dynasties over 4,000 years of Chinese history. And the point I'm trying to show with you this is when was Tibet incorporated? Tibet has not classically, not historically, been a part of the Chinese core. Chinese civilizations and most of its dynasties focus on the east. The western fringes only get picked up during certain eras when the Chinese government or the Chinese dynasty is very powerful. Tibet, for most of the last 4,000 years, was not a part of China. Again, maybe the CCP is going to get pissed at me for saying that, but it's only until the very bitter end, the uh, uh uh, a Qing empire that it expands so big that it physically takes over uh, a huge area that incorporates Tibet, all the Western, uh, the rest of Western uh, China and even Mongolia. So classic Chinese core has always been in the East and rarely has it included uh, uh, the kingdom of Tibet uh, in its political borders. And again, as empires expand and retract over time based on power of dynasty, and we're living in an era, I do want to make sure you note this, I'm showing you that dynasties come and go. The strong ones expand, the weak ones, and then they collapse and, and then China shrinks. Keep it in mind, you're in the era of a very powerful Chinese dynasty. You can call it you can call it a state, you can call it a sovereign state, you can call it whatever the hell you want. This is a dynasty. It's yet another Chinese empire, and they're behaving the same way that every powerful Chinese dynasty ever has. This is the dynasty of Xi Jinping, and he is extremely powerful. The state is extremely powerful. One could say it's reaching its height of power, and it's a height of power that's been uh, perhaps at its peak for all of Chinese history. It's more powerful now than it's ever been. So surprise, surprise, it's expanding. And by surprise, surprise, that's ironic. Of course it's expanding. It's what happens with powerful dynasties. So this place that is still called the Tibetan Autonomous Region, currently inside of Tibet, uh, is incorporating not just a, a, a sub-state of Tibet, but a substate that has an ethnic population that's not Han Chinese that actually used to be a much bigger than the Tibetan Autonomous Province, okay? Tibet is sometimes a fully independent kingdom in times past, sometimes influenced heavily by China when Chinese dynasties are strong, sometimes outright controlled by China when dynasties are exceptionally strong. Again, this is an ebb and flow that Tibet has been under for hundreds of years. <coughs> Excuse me. So if you went back just a couple hundred years, you can find maps that show the kingdom of Tibet that have nothing to do with uh, Qing Dynasty China. Uh, and I don't even know why I put this map in here, but I like it. And the last big dynasty before it collapsed was the Manchu slash Qing Dynasty that we talked about uh, yesterday, I believe. Uh, and it was a very powerful dynasty. 1644 right up to 1911, and we've referenced this earlier when they threw out the last, the last emperor was thrown out in 1912, the end of the dynasty system 
and the emperor system for China after four to 5,000 years of continuous history. But the Manchus last chain were a really strong one. They actually were the probably the next biggest, strongest single dynasty since the one we're living in right now. Uh, and they only had three leaders for like a couple hundred years. Three emperors consolidated holdings, expanded, and the Qing reached the largest territory extent ever of any previous dynasty before it. So at th this is the point, and now we're talking 1600s, okay? So yeah, that's a long time ago for human lives, but it's only 400 years ago. China's history is 4,000 to 5,000 years. So the last tenth, the last tenth of Chinese history, the Manchus got so powerful, they absorbed Tibet proper. They also absorbed Mongolia proper. Uh, and they also absorbed Hanan Island down south proper. Uh, by the way, if you look at this map, you see that Taiwan's not even in there yet. That's the other contentious issue with Taiwanese people is they didn't even really kind of take over Taiwan until a few, couple few hundred years ago. Okay. But as we pointed out, the suckiness ensues with the Qing dynasty. And like all dynasties before, they start to collapse starting about 1800. They get corrupt. Everything sucks. The economy starts to fall apart. Foreign uh, uh, powers start to move in and take over. And you know the rest of the story. 1912, the Qing completely fall. Tibet declares independence on that day. As China's falling apart, the entities around it, including Mongolia, including parts of what's now Korea, including Tibet, say, oh, good. The, Ch the Chinese dynasty is weak and they're gone away. Well, then we're back to being an uh, independent player again. Again, this is just the ebb and flow of world history. Now, fast forward, 1949, China stands back up again. Civil War is over. China's back large and in charge. Uh, by 1950, uh, under Mao, they already start to try to reconsolidate some of the territorial holdings they had lost, including Tibet. So they have already organized themselves a year after the Civil War and are sending out troops to set up garrisons to, to exert military power back into former provinces and, poor, and former areas, and Tibet is one of the main ones they do this in. In 1951, they come out with a 17-point agreement affirming People's Republic of China's sovereignty over Tibet, but granting the area some limited autonomy. And both Tibet and Inner Mongolia and Xinjiang, where the Uyghurs are, were granted semi-autonomous status. So they were never like fully states of China. They're, they're, they're special. They have special consideration because they're ethnically not, they're, they in the past were mostly not ethnically Chinese people. So they said, okay, no, no, you're part of China, the political unit, but you're going to be semi-autonomous. So you're, so you're the Tibetan autonomous region within China. That makes sense? Everybody with me? By the way, they're probably going to, they're going to probably relabel that soon too. You heard that here first because it's not autonomous anymore and China doesn't care if it's autonomous anymore or if it's titled that it's autonomous anymore. So... That's what happened in 1951. There were uprisings. Of course, there were Tibetan people, just like there are Uyghur people, just like there are Mongolian people that I pointed out in the last couple of days that don't want to be part of China and said, hey, wait a minute, we're a different culture and we're a different group of people. And I, yeah, we're going to fight back against the Chinese military people that are here. And we're going to push back against the Chinese businessmen that are trying to start up Chinese businesses here. So this came to a head in 1959 with an open Tibetan rebellion where they attacked soldiers and stuff like that. And at that point, China just invades fully. Again, you're looking at exactly 10 years since China stood back up. So 1949, China unifies under Mao. 1959, they invade, fully invade Tibet with military people to put down this uprising. And the Dalai Lama 
hauls ass. Oh, I like the way I phrased that. China invades fully, llama hauls ass fully. Okay, who the hell is the Dalai Lama? Spiritual leader of the Tibetan people and the kind of unspoken head honcho of Tibetan-style Buddhism. He's a worldwide figure that most people think is a holy man who's doing one of two things. Trying to bring world peace, or at least peace to your mind through meditation and following of a religious practice. Uh, or And or sticking up for and trying to maintain um, uh, Tibetan culture. Preserving Tibetan culture. These are two things that the man himself said, this is all I do in my life. I am not saying I want Tibet to be independent again. I'm not telling people to fight against Chinese troops to make Tibet independent again. I'm petitioning the Chinese government saying, hey, don't wipe out Tibetan culture and we should have more autonomy and be able to do our own things and practice religion our own way and do the things we want to do. That makes sense? Now, that's what the world thinks of this guy as kind of a good dude who's been on a worldwide speaking tour since 1959 when he hauled ass across the Himalayan mountains to get away from the Chinese troops who would have imprisoned him. Uh, they were trying to get him. If you were the Chinese government, you grab the head honcho. You got the head honcho, you control everybody. So everybody knew the writing was on the wall when the troops were coming in. In fact, there's a really good movie with Brad Pitt named Seven Years in Tibet, where it's a fictional account. I think he met the Dalai Lama, but... Uh, but it, it shows the events of the 1959 Uprising Rebellion. Of course, it paints it in a sympathetic light for the Tibetans, so the Chinese government would hate it. But most people think the Tibetan uh, uh, the Buddhist monk, Dalai Lama, super good guy, world peace, Buddhism's cool, it's chill, uh, and maybe he's trying to protect uh, the culture of Tibet. China thinks he's a terrorist sent from the spawn of hell uh, to rally people and sow chaos and confusion uh, in Tibet and to try to make people be so angry that they fight for Tibetan independence again. And they are utterly convinced of it, no matter what the Dalai Lama says, no matter what the world says. I mean, the Dalai Lama has been awarded the Nobel Peace Prize. He's been He's met with almost every major head of state for 50 years. Oh my gosh, it's going on 60 years. So he's a world-renowned figure that most people think is a peaceful dude. Chinese government, nope. The terrorist, straight-up terrorist, trying to tear Tibet away from China proper. Um, and by the way, you're not going to convince them otherwise. And the Chinese government uh, controls all the media, controls all the press, controls the educational system. As a result, since 1959, of China controlling the narrative Every single Chinese person in China also believes the Dalai Lama is a terrorist, Satan spawn who eats babies for breakfast. I, you know, whatever stories have been made up. Now, uh, there is a, a, a very well-taught narrative in Chinese schools, too, that I've uh, learned about through Chinese uh, students here who've told me about it. And they're very sympathetic uh, uh, to the Tibetans, not to the Dalai Lama. And the narrative that's taught in Chinese schools is that the Tibetan uh, situation was ba is slash was basically a monarchy slash dictatorship where all the peasants and peons were forced tribute and had to give money and some of them were sexual slaves to the the lamas and it, it's well it's a well thought out and well written piece of propaganda that probably has some historical merit. Uh, is it 100% historically accurate? It seems unlikely, 
but it does paint this picture and they paint this picture in a very specific way because what it's saying is the Chinese government, the Chinese people believe that the Chinese government went in to help the Tibetan people to overthrow this yoke of oppression from the Dalai Lama and the entire monarchical family Buddhist line. Uh, and they're utterly convinced of it beyond a shadow of a doubt. You, again, you're not going to convince Chinese people that this guy is anything but a hugely bad guy slash terrorist and that the Chinese government is the good guys who went in to help them out. And by the way, they also back it up with figures, which is it's great. I mean, it's a great story. So the way the Chinese government backs up its own situation or its own uh, um, um, actions is that they say, hey, look, if you went and, and did the GDP and looked at the state of development of Tibet in 1959 when we invaded, this place was a shithole. It was backwards. It had no industry, barely any roads. Public health was horrific. Infant mortality was through the roof. Those things are all probably true. So Tibet's a mountainous area in the middle of nowhere that uh, uh, doesn't have a lot of people. So no, it was not developed. And so the Chinese government has built roads and built railroads and built industries and created jobs. And so the Chinese people say, our government has helped these people. And that is the other side of the story. That is a decent argument to make. Uh, by the way, what's the Lama up to now? He's got to be like 110 years old. He probably will die any time. If you hear this Lama, don't die now just because I said it. But he's actually kind of retired from public life and retired from speaking, uh, which is helpful because uh, the Chinese government has pressured other countries around the world to not let the Dalai Lama come in to their country, to not let the Dalai Lama do public speaking. So it became a frictional thing where China was using its soft power once again to kind of get what it wants in the world. Uh, but the Dalai Lama is now so old, he's not really doing too much. He probably shows up on a college campus once a year or something and does a talk. But I don't think he's quite as active as he was. Oh, he does he? Well, never mind. Katie just told me he streams every single night. Well, he can't be moving around yeah, as yeah, much. Chilling, yeah. Before, you know, all these great streaming services and the pandemic, he he wasn't doing much of either. So he, I think, I thought he officially said he was retiring from public life not that long ago. And in Buddhist, uh, you have this thing called reincarnation. And the next Buddha is reincarnated from a former, I'm sorry, the next Dalai Lama is reincarnated from a former Dalai Lama. So they're always on the lookout for the reincarnation that will be the head next Lama. And years ago, the Chinese government said, we found the Lama already. So there's a, the Chinese already have a Lama in waiting for whenever he passes. Okay, somebody asked. I'm sorry I haven't got to all the questions. There's only so many good people in here asking all these great questions. Yeah, constant, constant questioning says they already have their Dalai Lama. Nope, that is absolutely correct. The CCP, I, I want to say it's ever been every bit of 20 years ago, already identified the next Lama and have had him under house arrest. I mean, uh, sheltering him in a palace. <laughs> so that when this Dalai Lama passes, the Chinese government will say, okay, let's have the whole ceremony. We got it. We're going to transport our Dalai Lama back to Tibet. We're going to go through the whole process and make him the official 15th or 16th or 100th head Dalai Lama, whatever the number is. That is definitely what's going on. If you can't understand how that is some brilliant long-term propaganda, then you don't understand what propaganda is all about. It's, it's really quite brilliant. Not so good for the Tibetans uh, to maintain their culture for the Dalai Lama himself, but nonetheless, a good piece of propaganda. 
So I say the Tibetan issue is over too because lots of folks from my whole lifetime have had free Tibet bumper stickers. When the Lama was on his game and was doing stuff all around the world and people knew more about the Tibetan situation and empathized with the Tibetans because of what was a, a kind of raw Chinese aggression of invading and taking over and running the Dalai Lama out, there used to be a lot more worldwide compassion for Tibet, much the same way there used to be 110 countries that recognized Taiwan. But as China has grown in power and influence and soft power and hard power, that has kind of faded. And time, you know, time takes over and people forget. People don't, young people don't know about the Tibetan situation, so they might put a free Tibet bumper sticker on their car because they went to a yoga class where somebody told them about it during some chanting and wind chimes, but they don't really understand the full picture and how it's pretty much over for Tibet. I'm not suggesting that the Chinese are going to go in and, and annihilate Tibetan culture. They're probably going to do a lot to save public face and start lots of Tibetan culture museums and protect Tibetan culture. But the idea that Tibet will be independent is it's already gone. And the idea that Tibet as a province will be anything other than a sub-state of China, that's a joke. It, it, will never be any, it will never be independent again. Again, unless World War III and everything changes, whatever. But it's just over. And not because the Chinese government are sending military people in there to squash uprisings. There really haven't been too many uprisings. And part of that is because there's not as many Tibetan people. And part of that is because of this process called Hanization. I've only seen this. I don't even know if it's a technical real world, but Hanization is a concerted effort by the Chinese government to move ethnically Han people into these border regions that used to be more ethnically somebody else. So in 1959, probably 90% of the people living in Tibet would have been Tibetan and only 10% Han Chinese or other. That that number might be flipped at this point. If it's not flipped, it's 50-50, and it's probably more like 75% Han Chinese to 25% uh, Tibetan. So China can very, very correctly at this moment in 2020 say, hey, look, what do you mean free Tibet? It's full of Han Chinese people. It's mostly Han Chinese people. It's China. It just is. And they've done this, again, through investment and in, in through railroads, roads, drilling operations, industry, uh, textiles, creating jobs, Chinese business people moving in, creating uh, whole economies. A lot of extractive economies are happening up there in terms of mining. So, yeah, it's used to be Tibetans in Tibet. And now it's mostly Han Chinese people in a place called Tibet. So how much longer are you even going to call it Tibet? And it certainly ain't going to be free anytime soon. Okay. And I'm only going to touch upon this and then wrap up for tonight. That's okay. I really wanted to get to the territorial issues. If you all will have me back on Friday or Saturday, I would love to talk about uh, the uh, first island string and second island string and the Belt and Road Initiative and the Spratly Island conflict. I'd love to talk about all that stuff, but I just noticed we've already done 90 minutes uh, and I haven't even got to this yet. So I just put all these bullet points up already. Now you understand how China took back over the Tibetan province after its loss in 1911, let's say. So Tibet was free for a few decades during the period of Chinese chaos. And it only got incorporated into the empire, say, 400 years ago. Well, 
what else is going on in this part of the world? A very high, very mountainous, tough terrain, uh, some of the highest peaks on planet Earth, mostly snow-covered, almost impassable borders, almost impassable areas. Uh, what else is going on in this very same area at the same time? Same time being 1940s, 1950s. That, well, that's right. That's when India becomes independent from British rule. So I like to parallel this. I want to put this in your brain that the same time that you know China was in chaos and then coming out of the chaos is roughly the same time that British are in chaos in India and they're leaving India and India is going to become independent. Uh, but of course, it's not just India because India had internal friction. So whenever the British in 1947, the British said, we're leaving, it's, the end, it's after World War II, we don't want to be an imperial power anymore, or at least the Indians are saying, you're going to get the hell out and not be an imperial power anymore. We're going to kick your asses out. So the British left India, and when it became independent, there was conflict between Hindus and Muslims in uh, uh, what was British India, one big collective unit. And so there was a mass migration of people that was uh, uh, in the move towards independence. The Muslims demanded and got their own state. So the, uh, the Hindu state was going to be India, and then the Muslim states were going to be Pakistan. In fact, it was West Pakistan and East Pakistan. Uh, East Pakistan later became Bangladesh. But I'm giving you a, this little primer here, mostly to put it into context of this other stuff we've heard with China, which is, wait a minute, aren't Chinese and Indian troops shooting at each other in the same area, in the Tibetan Plateau area that borders India and Nepal and Pakistan? Yes. And part of all of this current conflict is that China saying, hey, not only did we control Tibet and we're taking that back, there are other areas in this border region that, that India and Pakistan are claiming are theirs that they're not. Those are ours too, and we want those back. And that started because of the, again, confusion in both states at this time period. 1940, again, you're talking about World War II, where the whole world's in chaos. Uh, and then all these independence movements are happening, and there's a Chinese civil war happening. So these are undefined, unclear borders in a very uncertain age. So when we talk about, oh, well, why are they having this conflict? How come they just didn't settle this? Because everything was unsettled back then. Yes, it was a whopping 60 years ago. Oh, wait, is it 60 years? 50, 70 years ago. Holy cow, I'm getting old. So 70 years ago... <coughs> None of these entities were strong yet. There, you know, 75 years ago, there wasn't a China, unified China, and there wasn't an uh, independent India, and there, there was not nothing even remotely called Pakistan 75 years ago. So in the chaos, and the you know uh, the the settling out of the dust, let's say, of the chaos of the world wars and independence movements and civil wars. These highland areas are up for grabs. Not really up for grabs. There's some, you know, historical legacy, but for God's sakes, even back in 1947, I'm not even sure that was that well mapped. People are still trying to figure out how the hell to get into these areas in 1947. So the areas that you're hearing about being contested and fought over between India and China now are born of this era of, again, confusion and two strong states who were just gotten their act together, just become independent and are saying, hey, where's our land? Okay, well, here's the border. The, the classic historic border is here. We're going to take this. And there, these two countries are still trying to figure that out. That's all it is. 
It's a territorial dispute from older times that they haven't quite figured out yet because it's remote terrain. It's tough to get to. And 50 and 60 years ago, these entities weren't powerful enough to exert control over them. But times have changed. And China's super powerful now. And India's not shirking itself. And Pakistan is of nuclear power as well. By the way, all three of these states are nuclear-powered states. I'm sorry, nuclear weapons states. They got nuclear power too, but nuclear weapons is the important thing. Because these are the only three countries on planet Earth that... uh, uh, It's the only place on planet Earth where nuclear-armed nations border each other. Uh, the Soviet Union never bordered the U.S., even though we have most of the nuclear weapons. So the friction is not as much, let's say. Here you have an area with openly disputed borders between Pakistan, India, China, India, and China. And they all have nuclear weapons. So that's why this is always kind of a powder keg in this part of the world of ah, things could go sideways here very quickly and not end well. So if you look at this map... The hatchet areas in uh, yellow, everything in yellow is what India currently controls. The hatchet orange area over there, Arunachal Pradesh, is claimed by China outright. And this is not a small chunk of change. And neither is the uh, Aksai Chin, uh, which I believe is a glacier there. Oh, no, uh, Sai Chin Glacier next to Aksai Chin. Both of these areas are uh, controlled by China, and India claims them both. And, of course, if you heard anything about Kashmir, both India and Pakistan control parts of Kashmir, and both sides say they should control the other side. So this is a mess here that's resulted, it's gotten quite active again just in the last month, where the uh, two superpower states of China and India are squaring off in these remote-ass mountain passes where they were beating each other to death with sticks and stones literally a month and a half ago. Why did they beat each other to death with sticks and stones? Because the Chinese and Indians had agreed to a ceasefire and a truce many moons ago, and they said, hey, look, we're not even going to let our soldiers have weapons up here just to make sure that nothing ever happens. And then something happens, and so they beat each other to death with bayonets. And you're like, oh, my God. This is crazy. This is two. This is like three weeks ago. This isn't 500 years ago. It's like three weeks ago. So that's why that issue has gotten hot again uh, and why you're likely to see more about it in the future. And that's partly because uh, the dragon is awake. China is back, bitches, as I used to say back in the day. And so what I was going to do from here forward, and I am going to stop because I am exhausted, my friends. And it seems like a good natural break point, too. I know a lot of folks wanted me to do more on the India-China border issue, which, and I will. It's mostly skirmishes that I can just kind of go through, tell you about them. But now I wanted you to start by understanding the politics behind it, the territorialism behind it, and citing it in history of how it became disputed land. So that's my main goal that I hope you got tonight. That's why Taiwan is in this weird situation where the U.S. supports it and is arming it, but no one recognizes it. That's why Tibet is now gone. It's part of China. It's not going anywhere else. And that's why India and China are facing off over little bits of land up in these gigantic mountainous areas. Next time, we'll talk. uh, I'm going to catch you up on China from this point, say 1959, up to the modern day in very short order. And mostly, just so you understand how much more powerful they've become, as they now start to exert more control and more influence into other places like Taiwan, 
uh, like the South China Sea, like the Spratly Islands. That's coming up and the Belt and Road Initiative. So that's coming up, if that's cool with everybody. But for now, I'll field any questions. Try to get people, get some damn sleep. Okay. Uh, Vikram says, one more uh, podcast on Saturday. Yeah, that, that seems like fun. Make sure I click this. Yeah, I want to see that slide there for a second. And then I can go over here to full webcam. And then I can attempt, and I'm sorry, everybody, I can attempt to start answering some of the questions. You guys have such good questions and so many of them. <coughs> that it's easy to get behind. Let's see. Uh, let's see. Jakob agrees with me that, uh, let's see, no. Jay Kim says, so does that mean that Tibet and Inner Mongolia have been fully sinicized? Yeah, I like that word, sinicized. I've heard han- hanization and sinicized, basically moving a certain ethnic group, encouraging a certain ethnic group to move into another part of the world uh, with a different ethnic group to make it more like your. Uh, a country. Yeah, the, uh, Inner Mongolia, Tibet, definitely sinicized, and Xinjiang is the next place that they are encouraging a lot of movement into. Uh, let's see. Uh, let's see, Truman. Oh, I went too far back now. Yeah, sorry, I'm trying to catch up. Yeah, Yakob is the one that said uh, he strings uh, that the Dalai Lama is still streaming every day, but he has retired from politics. He has a new and a new album come out. <laughs> That's awesome. And Constant Questioning says the one they have is the Banshan Lama, second to the Dalai Lama. He, I guess, will become the first Lama in line once the Dalai Lama uh, dies. Thank you all so much for helping me out with uh, all of the uh, uh, details. Again, I'm a generalist, so I like to understand the general picture. I don't always have every single detail at my disposal. I know a little bit about everything, but not a lot about any certain thing. Uh, uh, let's see, CHSH013 says, if Tibet went independent in 1950, will Tibet end up being as undeveloped as Mongolia is now? Yes. Yeah, I'd say that's a very good assessment, CHSH. Uh, had China not been interested in taking over the Tibetan plateau, I can't see any other option besides being fairly undeveloped. Mongolia is starting to kind of get there because it has a bunch of oil or coal or something that's recently been discovered. Uh, but yeah, you got to think it's a, mostly because of its remoteness. It's in the middle of nowhere. It's hard to get to. There's no reason to get to it. So you have to assume that Tibet without Chinese uh, um, integration would be wildly behind and probably as impoverished as, I don't know, the most impoverished African country. And that's something else the Chinese government would would uh, tell people it's like you know if we didn't do this you'd have uh, you know high death rates of children and malaria flying through this place and everybody would say wow China you should do something to help them out and that's a, a decent argument uh, let's see uh, Cameron the map guy said do you think that even though China and the US are approaching a new cold war if not already in a cold war that we can at least get along and rally around ensuring a bright future and progress for humanity as a whole uh, you know, for stuff like global warming, humanitarian uh, problems, and space travel. Cameron the Map God, I want you to be right so badly. I so badly hope you are correct. However, has that ever happened in the past in human history? <laughs> Have we ever had a past situation where two powerful entities just said, we should work together? Um, one could hope that China is now taking the lead 
on a lot of global issues as the United States starts to become more isolationist, which again is comically ironic in that China was isolationist forever. Now China's a world leader and the United States, a world leader forever, is now becoming isolationist. C'est la vie. Uh, but w one can remain hopeful that as China becomes uh, takes over more of a leadership role on things that you just mentioned, like global warming in particular, but even space travel, one can be optimistic that maybe it will be not so much that the U.S. will say, let's all get along and work together. I'm more optimistic that the United States takes that as a threat, not a military threat, but a threat of their pride. And that the United States already is saying, wait, 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 China cannot be the next people to the moon. Oh, come on. Uh, come on, guys. Let's, let's us in the United States get our act together. Yeah, we should... Wait, whoa, whoa, whoa. We're going to be the first ones to Mars. No way China's going to be the first ones to Mars. I actually think that's how human, uh, our species works best, is friendly competition bordering on unfriendly competition. Now, when it comes to nuclear weapons and war, yeah, we're all just going to die. If they can't solve, uh, if they can't work stuff out and a confrontation occurs, we are going to die. That's it. Done. If we, short of nuclear apocalypse, yes, it's a very positive thing. You have two powerful entities with a strong pride who will be competing with each other to do, hopefully, great things, not shitty things. That's where the chips always fall out. Uh, and uh, unfortunately, human history is more a race to the bottom where two powerful entities tr try to figure out and waste a lot of their time and energy figuring out how to undercut the other one or go to war with the other one or undermine the other one. One can hope that we go the optimistic route this go around and be like, no, you know what? Yeah, I live in the United States. I hope the U.S. puts men on uh, humans on Mars first. And if I was in China, I'd say, man, I hope China puts men on Mars first. It's kind of like rooting for the home team. You know, it's it's like sports. Competition is a good thing, and people love it, and they want to watch it, even if they're not participating in it. So I I again cautiously optimistic that on certain issues of technology and space and global warming and of medicine, uh, medical breakthroughs, uh, I, I, I think it's going to be a good thing. And I don't think it's bad that you have competition between these two very capable powers uh, with a whole lot of people that are very motivated to outdo the other team. <laughs> Again, it's mostly, uh, I hope that China really gets serious about clean energy as they have suggested they are in the last just couple months uh, because the United States seems absolutely hopelessly addicted to oil, just hopeless. And so the United States has the technology and a lot of people in the United States, say 50% of them have the willpower to want to have a more green society. But given how divided the United States is, it's not going to happen. I mean, even if Biden gets elected, you still have a very divided population. I don't think you have that in China as much. In China, I think people say, hey, this, that looks good. Let's all work towards that. Yeah, we got, they got a lot of work to go, but let's all work towards that. Space is the easy one. Let's definitely put a Chinese man on the moon. Everybody's going to support that. Chinese government's going to support it. People are going to support it. Let's just hope, again, that everybody says, and we should conquer the world. And we should, we should militarily kill everyone. You're like, oh, here we go. It's Nazi Germany again. So if we, under the right circumstances, that competition could be very, very good. Under the wrong circumstances, we're all doomed.
So have another drink. <laughs> uh, let's see. Oh, I'm sorry, Vikram. That is a good idea. Uh, Vikram asked, would you mind citing your news sources uh, uh, with your screenshots? Yes, I will do that in the future. Um, I will definitely do that. I try to just do a screenshots that takes out all the advertising so that you can actually see it, the story on the screen. But I will try to be conscientious about citing the news source or having the, uh, the, the newspaper headline on top when I grab something. Good, That's a good idea. Thanks. Uh, was that Vicky or Vikram? Okay. Uh, Vicky, Vicky Lars says, is there a specific reason China went for taking over Tibet but not Mongolia? Um, Mongolia had a great question, Vicky, and there is an answer. Uh, Mongolia had already kind of been teased off as an independent state uh, during the Chinese Civil War that was kind of a puppet state of Russia. I'm sorry, Soviet Union. So the great Soviet Union, and think about it geographically, yeah, Mongolia is wedged between Soviet Union and China. So it already had a bit of autonomy slash it was recognized as independent under Russian tutelage. I'm sorry, Soviet Union tutelage. And China uh, historically did not have much claim on that. Again, about the same time it took over Tibet, but it had much more relations in Tibet previous to the Manchu dynasty. There was interaction. There was probably a Silk Road route that went through there. Uh, and so China had much more of a relationship, let's say, with Tibet over the centuries, whereas the Manchus took over Mongolia without really having a whole lot of interaction with it prior. Remember, Mongolia is where the Mongolians are from, uh, including Genghis Khan. So their Great Wall of China was built to keep them out. <laughs> Not a lot of interaction between the Chinese and the Mongolians. And it was historical circumstance that they were kind of separate by the time China unified. Someone also commented, Dear Dance, Dear Dance on uh, YouTube said China also secured Tibet in order to protect the origins of their water systems. Ah, good call. So Dear Dance on YouTube. YouTube? throws in a great point that all of China's water and its great rivers uh, originate on the Tibetan Plateau. So now you're from, and I'm not sure how many countries are even thinking about that 60 or 70 or 100 years ago. But yeah, it's a, uh, it was a strategic natural resource base for China for all of its history, really. Which is why, it, and because it's so remote and mountainous and not that many people there, China never really cared about it historically. They don't have to to control it because there's nobody there anyway. But coming into the modern era, yeah, you don't want another entity controlling the headwaters that water all of the crops and your people for most of your country. So yeah, quite important. And by the way, if you don't think uh, controlling the headwaters of major rivers is important, go check out what Turkey's doing in Iraq. So Turkey controls the headwaters of the Euphrates and the, um, oh, I'm just blanking. The classic, uh, the Tigris. Tigris and Euphrates river systems, which form the Fertile Crescent within Iraq, and they're the center of Iraq civilization forever, those rivers start in Turkey. Now, again, nobody cared 3,000 years ago because there was no Turkey. Uh, and uh, whatever entity controlled Iraq at that time would have controlled the headwaters. Now you've got the headwaters in a separate sovereign state, 
that can use turning off that water as a political ploy to pressure Iraq into things. And indeed, that's what's happening. Uh, and there's other examples around the world too, but that's your best one. So yeah, good call, Deer Dance. Got a lot to do with the water too. And of course, in the modern era, they found tons of minerals and I'm assuming energy resources and some other things, which is why China is not willing to ever give it up. Any other questions? I can give a, I can a couple more questions. I see we're already going two hours again. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, let's see. Uh, Jay Kim says, in terms of influence, are you willing to talk about their influences in the Balkans or in East Europe? I'm sorry, whose influences in the Balkans or East Europe, uh, Jay Kim? I'm willing to talk about anything. If you want to hold on that one, I have another question. Yeah, yeah, go with the other question over there. Oh, China's influence on the yes. Balkans and East Europe. I, yeah, I don't really know that much about that, uh, Jay Kim, but if you can send me an article or two of something you've seen, that I, I've not heard anything about China's influence reaching quite there yet. The Belt and Road Initiative, when I get to that next talk, I could bring that up if I know a little bit more about what you're referencing. Question from you. Will Tessier, who's a grad student, or grad, Will, uh, Will. Oh, I remember Will. Yeah, remember the speech battle between Russia and China on that land border. Can you speak to the partnership between those two countries? Do, uh, sorry, Will Brister says... There, uh, say the first part again. Have there, any disputes, Have there any, been any disputes or battles between China and Russia? Oh, yeah. <clears throat> yeah, big time. Uh, in fact, um, it's, I think it's part of the reason why the Soviets teased Mongolia away as kind of a buffer zone between them and China. There was actually a lot of a pre, pre or very early World War II battles that occurred between the Russians and the Japanese uh, on the Chinese-Russian border in the same area. So, uh, yeah, there have been some, uh, not too many major ones, more that, remember, by the time this Russia, Russia's empire was sweeping across and, uh, uh, Asia and getting bigger, was the same about the same time that uh, China is falling down and crumbling. So there weren't any real face-offs, military face-offs between those two because it would have been one-sided. If you flip back to that map I had that showed spheres of influence in China, Russia's sphere of influence encompassed Mongolia and all the northern territories of China at that time because China was really weak. So in that scenario, no, they, they never really militarily engaged. It was more uh, influence vying for control. And I believe the more important issue is that they might soon have conflict on the Russian-China border because in the same light that we talked about the Sinization or the Hanization of border areas, the same thing's happening in Russia. Lots of Chinese people are moving across the Russian-Chinese border into Russian proper. And it's because there's lots of resources there and lots of land and not many Russians. So we're talking about Russia's far east, far east. And there, it's a very unpopulated place. And China's kind of bursting at the seams in certain areas. They got a billion and a half people. And so I won't say the Chinese government is encouraging Han Chinese, Han Chinese people to move across the border into Russia, but they sure shit ain't stopping it either. <laughs> They're not preventing it. 
It's a very fluid border, again, because these are very sparsely populated parts of the world, from Central Asia to Mongolia to uh, China's uh, uh, northeastern quadrant. There's not a lot of people up there, uh, and Russia's far east is pretty much empty. So that could be a contentious issue of the future, is more and more Chinese folks going across the border and starting businesses and maybe claiming lands and it becomes more chinese and then maybe the Chinese government says, hey, that's mostly Chinese people there. I guess that's our land now. Uh, by the way, on the opposite border, same story, different country in Burma. A lot of Chinese migration moving in across the border to Burma, into uh, uh, Vietnam even, although much less uh, Burma, Thailand. There are, there's been movements of, of people uh, from China proper into those areas that, again, is starting to cause friction with the local governments of like, hey, what the hell's going on here? We're becoming more and more Chinese as every year passes. So that's problematic pretty much on all of China's borders. Uh, let's see. What did I miss over here? China. <clears throat> let's see. Yeah, that's a good reason. Yeah, that's why they're going to win. Uh, they go to Mars first. You saw her first. Okay, here. You saw it here. That's right. Uh, Jakob also referenced the Sakhalin Island dispute between China and Russia. That was the only one. Thank you for reminding me, Jakob. That was the one I was trying to think. And I don't even know if that... I was trying to think if the Sakhalin Island dispute actually... If any any bullets were fired. I don't think so. I believe the Russians grabbed Sakhalin Island at the end of World War II. And so it's disputed, but it was never fought over. Does that make sense? Disputed, never fought over. Actually, much like Taiwan. Disputed, actually never fought over yet. Yet. Okay. <clears throat> uh, thanks for that link, J. Kim. I will try. In fact, I'll just open it up right now so I can see it. And <coughs> yeah, I'll read the 95 page. Hold on. You guys just watch me really quick while I um, I'll read these 95 pages. <laughs> uh, and by the way, again, this is more for the next topic we cover. But China's inroads into Africa are also causing consternation with some African countries. And that again, that's for next time. That's the Belt and Road Initiative going up with its defensive uh, initiatives in the South China Sea. Okay, any other questions from you? What do we got? Thank you all so much. I really thought we would only do 45 minutes tonight. I mean, I asked. Everybody said, sure, just do 45. Uh, but we've now gone another two hours. I've got no problem with it, although I'm running out of steam. It's been a long week already. It's only Wednesday. So we're traveling tomorrow. But if you want another one of these, we'll leave the plan for Friday or Saturday. Saturday night? Saturday. I mean, I don't... Saturday night's all right for fighting is what Elton John told me. So I can also podcast, right? Uh, you all have a great evening. Thank you all so much for tuning in. As always, if you like this, please pass it on to somebody else. Pass it on to former students or other folks on Twitch. By the way, Katie was saying, uh, wouldn't it be cool if we got our plaid artist to make icons for Twitch? Is it icon? Emotes. Emotes. Would you guys uh, want to subscribe to the channel if we came up with some unique plaid emotes? I'm too old. I don't even know what the hell these things are. So <clears throat> keep that in mind for the future. And maybe we'll even have some uh, for subscribers, maybe even get 
some uh, merch that we'll figure out some ways to get merch to you. Everyone who's a subscriber will definitely get one of these because I'll just mail it to you. Everybody needs a plaid head in their life if they subscribe once we get to that point of having subscribers. So thank you all so much. Let us know what we can do that'll be cooler, better, funner, other topics you want to talk about. And have a great evening. And as always, party on.